On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed number 130, Chris Gilliard talks about digital redlining and privacy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest has already joined me on the recording. Chris, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thank you. A lot of times I record the person's bio before they get online, but I thought it would be fun to have you on with me because you're the hardest guest I've ever had to track down. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I take a, a straight side of that, actually. Yeah, I mean, given that the work I do in privacy and that my Twitter handle is hypervisible, so... Yes, um, you are not the first or the last person to tell me that. I have been admiring your work ever since I heard about you. And and there's always sort of the intimidation factor of just reaching out to someone. But usually it's fairly easy to get in touch with them, you know, in some way or another. And then I was kind of, I think we ended yeah. up, we finally ended up, I think, connecting on Twitter. And you graciously said I could direct message you. And then we, we found each other. But I'm so glad that you're here. <laughs> and I do I do think it's funny that you're, one of your areas of expertise is on privacy. And somehow that just makes me want to know even more about you. <laughs> so it's kind of cracks me up. He's right, like, right. I'm not sure it's being hard to find it is good or bad for my career but oh yeah my career is in, in public anyway but uh i i it's too funny to stop doing it yes, I, I yes. Find it to be, to change. <laughs> it's good you know it's good for us podcasters to be challenged and people that want to you know, hear your story <laughs> it's a good thing well you have been teaching for 20 years and i know you teach writing literature and digital studies and Tell us a little bit about sort of the diverse institutions that you have worked at, because they really seem <laughs> very different from one another, and then where you teach now. Oh, well, uh, I've been fortunate enough to um, teach at a wide range of places. I started teaching uh, where I got my uh, graduate degree at Purdue University. I taught at a, a Jesuit school, University of Detroit, and I also um for my current position, I taught at Michigan State University for a couple of years, and now I teach at a, a community college in Michigan. And I know your areas of expertise, as we've already said, are privacy, surveillance, data mining, and the rise in our algorith algorithmically determined future. And we're going to talk about two of these things today. <laughs> we're going to talk about digital redlining and privacy. And I almost had at one point thought, oh, well, we'll do two episodes if you were so willing, but then they really do link a lot together. So we have the great challenge of addressing a lot. And I'm so excited that you're here. And let's just start out with black boxes of yesterday. Tell me about what black boxes were and how they, I guess, first came about. Well, okay, so generally the notion of a black box is the, is the um, I, I think one of the ways it has come about is a lot of times when you hear it say of like an airplane crash, right, and they have like a black box. And it's come to mean sort of like in, in technical settings, it's come to mean some kind of a mechanism that people can't see into, right? It's, you know that there's like a algorithm or a program or a 
formula that's inside operating, but the average user is not able to see inside of that to know what's happening. And it's gained a little more popularity now uh, in terms of algorithms with the, um, the book Black Box Society that was put out by Frank Pasquale. And in that, he talks about the ways that algorithms uh, go a long way in determining lots of different things about how people live their lives today, whether it's, uh, you know, what kind of news they get in um, through Facebook or other social media or how their credit's determined or who gets the job. And generally, those formulas that help determine those things are not available to the average user or consumer. And so that, that formula is called a black box. And today's internet filtering is, is part of this concept of a black box too, right? Can you bring a little piece of that in as well? Yeah. So I came to a lot of this work through my teaching. And so the short version is my institution used to be, um, <laughs> and, and, and they've changed that somewhat, so I need to give them some credit, but they used to pretty heavily filter the internet on campus. And one of the problems with that is that the people being filtered don't know that they're being filtered. Okay. And uh, so the, the common example and the example I've written about, and I use it because it's the best example, not because I have some period interest rate, but it's pornography, right? So I had um, my students, we do a lot of work on digital issues, such as ownership of um, digitally produced works or, or um, copyright, um, questions of agency in digital settings, things like that. And I had my students, uh, and some students wound up doing some research on revenge porn. Mm-hmm which is, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. But feel so, free, feel uh, free, just in case someone isn't, yeah, feel free to define it. Well, generally, uh, what, what that means is if there are two, or more than two for that matter, if there are consenting adults who um, digitally record their activities, their private activities, and at one point, uh, one of the uh, parties decides that he or she is going to publish this material on online without the agreement of the other parties or party, uh, and often as a way to, to get back at, um, at, at, the, at that party for um, some perceived wrong, then that's known as, as revenge porn. Mm-hmm. And my students were doing work on this. And I mean, we all know about the, uh, all the sort of moral panics about sexting and things like that. So these are things students need to know about. And when my students search revenge porn, what they would find is that the search engines would just return uh, things that just had, they pretended, the search engine would essentially pretend that the word porn didn't exist. Now my students were not looking for pornography, they were looking for scholarly works and popular works on revenge porn, Mm -hmm. of which there are many. But if I hadn't been there to guide them, you know, so they would say, Professor Goethe, nothing exists on, the, on this topic. And if I hadn't been there to guide them and say, oh, no, well, you can look at the work of this person or you can look at the work of that person. And it does exist, but, the, but our computers on campus are not allowing you to get that. They would, have ju- they would just move along not knowing you know, or, or thinking that that, those, uh, that that kind of scholarship didn't exist. And this is one of the pernicious effects of filtering in a lot of cases because 
unless you have, say, access to unfiltered um, internet or unfiltered feeds or something like that, or unless you have a really keen understanding of how filtering works, you often don't know what you're not getting. So it, it remains invisible. And especially in the case of students, uh, that's really harmful because it essentially walls them off from information. How has your work looked into how filtering is treated differently or the same, depending on the type of institution that it is? Well, um, that's an interesting question. So in K through 12, there, for the most part, there's a federal, there's federal restrictions or federal mandates that there needs to be some kind of filtering. Uh, a lot of that ties into how um, internet or broadband is funded in uh, K through 12 institutions, but that mandate does not cross over into colleges. And so typically at a lot of institutions where I've been or that I'm aware of, and, and my colleague Keith Gillick and I have actually looked at the uh, acceptable use policies of, of quite a few colleges, uh, typically filtering is not uh, in place. I mean, so illegal things will be filtered or yeah, things that are illegal. <laughs> I don't need to uh, enumerate those. <laughs> uh, typically, things that are <laughs> these are things that are filter. things I won't be linking to in the show notes. That's what you're telling yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> I should stop typing now. <laughs> I'll stop taking my notes. <laughs> um, but for the most part, other than that, colleges tend to not filter. Uh, but I have noticed that there may be. Uh, the, uh, how shall I say this? Often the more prestigious the college, or even if we want to look at it in the economic terms, the more money a, a place has, the, the more open their network is in terms of allowing, allow, uh, of not filtering, but also in terms of, if we want to think about acceptable use policies, in terms of how students are encouraged to think of the network. And so... Uh, a lot of this experience, again, came from my institution where I and a few other colleagues got involved in a, a pretty, pretty uh, extended discussions with our institution about uh, whether or not colleges should have filtering, uh, should filter out any material that's, that is legal. And I'm on, on the side that says, no, they should not. One of the other ways that you have said that this problem is compounded is just the access to paid for databases. Can you share a little bit about that and how that creates even more of a challenge? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Not a lot of people seem to know this, but also, again, students aren't necessarily privy to this information, which is that things like uh, JSTOR and, and First Search and things like that, uh, scholarly databases that often professors are really high on students uh, using, those are subscription services. And a place like mine, a community college, has much different access because we have less money than, than a place like uh, Michigan State or University of Michigan would have. Okay, so institutions also in my state. So uh, my wife recently started teaching at University of Michigan. And that was a real thrill for me because it meant that I would have access to all of their database subscription services um, and articles that I would be able to get through my institution. But again, students don't necessarily know. So they may, something may pop up that says 
this article is not um, accessible or it may ask them to pay for the article, which again, for a student basically means they're, you know, I mean, most students are in a position and I certainly wouldn't even encourage them to do this, uh, to pay $39 for an article. So that um, often stops their research cold, but a lot of times students don't know why this is happening. Right? You know, no one's explained the structure to them of why certain places have certain kinds of access and others have different kinds of access. And so if we imagine students doing research, uh, students trying to get work done, students pursuing their own interests, they often again run up, run into walls that exist. Sometimes that they're aware that the walls exist even, um, maybe different from the filtering, but they're not aware of why they exist. And I suspect, although I didn't ask you this in advance, <laughs> let me let me put a theory before you that if I as a student or I as a faculty member don't know that I'm being filtered, I probably also don't mm-hmm. know that I'm being tracked, that what I am searching for is being tracked in some cases by my institution. Right. And that's different at all different kinds of institutions. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you can bring in stuff about learning analytics and things like that. But for the most part, I mean, people who run networks are responsible for um, being able to maintain those networks. And if there are threats, finding out where those threats are originated. So there's a level of tracking that's going to be necessary or how that's done, um, who it's done by, who has access to those logs, how long they keep them. You know, all these things are kind of important questions. But yeah, um, in my experience, both with uh, faculty and students, this awareness of how uh, closely watched we are when we're on networks, it's not high. That awareness is not high. And we can even broaden it beyond the institution because my my work shows that our students don't necessarily even realize, you know, to what extent Google is tracking them or why when I go and search for a particular product outside of Facebook and the next time I'm in Facebook, all of a sudden I'm presented with an ad for that very same product. What a coincidence on the right-hand right. side of my screen. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, well, as you can imagine, as I, as you mentioned, I'm interested in privacy. I think that those are essential um, that information is essential for students and, and for citizens, for consumers, for all kinds of reasons, right? Uh, I, I mean, that is the, that's the way we experience the web. I think there's some, there's some ways in which that's a very problematic model, but it's the one that, that we're, we're working with right now. Um, so people need to understand that in terms of whether it's for, in terms of uh, how they do their work or how they do their shopping, or, you know, how, to what degree they want to have some anonymity or, or privacy when they, when they operate online. And uh, I've found that lots of, again, lots of students aren't getting this information. Uh, we work on it a lot in my, in my classes, and, some, and very often it's the first time a lot of people have heard about it, or heard about it to the extent that, that we tend to discuss it. What is digital redlining? Oh, well, okay. So, um, <laughs> I know. We're just going to dive right in. <laughs> You're like, okay, uh, set your watch. It'll little, take two hours. <laughs> Let me give a little background. I, I'm from Detroit, and one of the amazing things about Detroit that is um, remarkable to people who are not from here is that there are streets you can walk or drive down where you see a very 
you see a very, a very different city depending on if you look to the left or look to the right. You know, so there's a, a town uh, called Gross Point and on one side and it's Detroit on the other. And literally on, on one side of the road, uh, you know, there's potholes in the road and some dilapidated houses. And on the other side, there's million dollar homes and all the lampposts have planters with flowers on them. Yeah, you know, there are other areas where this is clear also. You know, there's um, Eight Mile, which has probably been made famous or infamous by Eminem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the average age of your of your listeners, but many of them have maybe heard of Eight Mile. You can see that as well. <laughs> and if they haven't, I'm going to link to it in the show notes, so at least they can go <laughs> check that out too. Get yourself educated, people. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of those, a lot of that disparity is, is rooted in history. And, you know, if you want a, a really long but high quality discussion of some of this, uh, you can look at uh, ta Coates' uh, long, long form work on, on uh, called The Case for Reparations. But essentially in, I think, uh, 19, the National Housing Act of 1934, uh, who that established the Federal Housing Administration, what they did is they basically, uh, how shall I say it, at the behest of, of, of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, uh, the um, Homeowners Loan Corporation created maps of cities. And those maps would code, color code and, and letter grade different areas of the city in terms of where, which areas would be invested in and which areas would uh, receive, um, who, who would receive loans to build or buy houses in that area and things like that. So often there would be red lines drawn around the uh, worst, often called hazardous areas of, of a city. And those are those were typically the areas where um, where black people live. So this, this practice has been come to be called redlining. Mm-hmm. And if we think about the throughout much of uh, America's history, housing, you know, or access to to housing has been one of the primary ways in which people built wealth. So if we just think about that in terms of minorities being denied that access to to uh, building wealth in that way, right? And even generational wealth. I mean, uh, definitely before the 2008 crash, this was true for you know the 50 years previous. Uh, we can we can see uh, how that disparity um, manifests itself throughout throughout history. So I found that this is a pretty useful frame for also thinking about access to information and access to technology. And so I call that digital redlining. And what digital, digital redlining is, there, it's tech policies, technology policies, practices, pedagogy, investment decisions that reinforce class and race boundaries. And so that, that's how I think about it. Right? Mm-hmm. I, um, that is the, the that's the shortest answer I could give. That's what digital <laughs> redlining is. And I know you have other examples of how ed tech tends to digitally redline students, and especially if we're not thinking very critically about it. Could you could you give a few of those examples? Yeah, well, I mean, we talked a little bit about filtering, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the main ways. But I also I think it's important to also think about access, right? So, for instance, there's a, a very a prevailing myth about who has the internet, right? That everyone 
lots of people think that everyone has the internet, that everyone goes home and they have high speed access. And there's lots of numbers I could cite. Uh, there's, I could point, I could point you to some stuff for, in the show notes, but there are lots of people who do not have broadband, right? Who are cell phone dependent, who say, hey, say maybe only have the internet through their phone, who have some form of not high speed internet. Um, and that makes a difference, say, in if you think about that when you're assigning things. So um, a lot of times professors may um, assign students uh, videos that they need to watch, or they need to watch a movie, or they need to do something that depends on the internet and depends on something that would gobble up a lot of data. And that is not available to everyone. And so you've essentially been given the student a couple of choices, uh, none of which are good, right? So maybe they have only the internet on their phone and they're on a limited data plan. Or maybe they uh, don't have it at home and so they, have to, they can only do it from school. And when we fail to take into account these things, we're really harming our students. And I, I've seen it in the last two years, I've done a lot of traveling to different conferences and, and talking to lots of different instructors. Now, this part is anecdotal evidence, but there are, there are many, many people who haven't thought of it, um, both at my own institution and in institutions across the country. Um, so that even something as simple as designing a syllabus, we need to take into account uh, how certain people might or might not have access to certain technology, even something as basic as well, some consider basic as, as internet access. I had a guest on the podcast a while back, Mike Cross, who teaches at Northern Essex Community College. And the episode was all about how he went undercover as a professor at his, uh, sorry, he went undercover as a student <laughs> at his community college. And just what a reality check that was for him. But of course, most of us are probably not going to necessarily be able to upend our lives the way that he did to accomplish something like that. And so I'm wondering for you, are there any ways that we can think about just how to get small doses of reality checks when it comes to these things? Is there a way of putting on some lenses to, to call more attention to ourselves of ways that we are potentially doing this without even realizing it? One of the things I, I really, uh, I, I don't know the, uh, how to call it a pet, but when we, when we think about pedagogy, and, and especially when, you know, when we think about ed tech, one of the things that kind of gets me is the desire, the desire to put some kind of technology in between you and your students and, and that, will, that works against um, some of the, the really important aspects of teaching. And what I mean by that is, very simply, talk to your students. You know, I mean, I have a, a joke about, and it's not actually that funny, but uh, a lot of times I ask my students uh, the names of their other professors. And a lot of times they don't know. Mm -hmm. And they don't know, not because there's some fault with them, wait, with the student. They don't know because their professors haven't engaged them. You know, their professor didn't say, hey, how are you doing? You know, uh, how was your weekend? Uh, you know, whatever it is, they didn't share some mutual interest in uh, sports or, or whatever it may be. And when you find that out, you know, I have students who are fast food managers, who are welders, 
who have two and three jobs, you know, so there's a very simple thing you could do, which is engage your students a little bit more, you know, but there's also research out there that talks about some of these issues that students face. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but uh, Sarah Goldrick Rabb, she used to be at Wisconsin, um, but she left uh, with the uh, Walker Initiative. Uh, she does some really interesting work. Uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom does some really interesting work. Uh, and I mean, there's tons of stats too that talk about the number of students, college students who are have had some experience with homelessness, the number who are single parents, you know, and these are not the experiences of necessarily people at very high profile colleges, but that's only a select few of us anyway. Uh, So if we, if we take some time to look at this information that is available, you know, like uh, why do colleges have food banks? (laughs) I mean, we can know a little better what our students are going through and I firmly believe that this will change the way people teach because, uh, you know, and I'm really, I, I don't even want to bring this up, but I mean, there's all these nerves flying out around about coddled students and things like that, which is, is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at who students are and, and the kinds of things they have to go through to get an education, I mean, we really need to consider that stuff more, even making decisions about, Uh, you know, about the syllabus, about what's required, about how long people will have to do an assignment, all these things, like what technologies we use and don't use. If we understand better who our students are, it will change how we do those things. One of the things I sometimes like to do, I don't, I don't require this, but if a student is asked, is come to my office hours and is asking about a question about an assignment or something, I teach a lot of blended courses. So if they have their phone with them, or if they have their computer with them, I like to have them bring it up on on the computer or if the students ain't trying to see where they stand in the class oh well let's go look click, click on you know the my grades and let's let's look at this i use a learning management system called canvas and one of the features i really like about it is it lets students create projected grades for the end of the semester so i'll encourage them to make one for the worst case scenario and the best case scenario and save mm-hmm. those things but but when we do it together it helps me see through their eyes how they're experiencing whatever technology i've set up for the class and i i catch myself right. all the time by thinking that's just bad design you've got to fix that that that's not the right place for that link or no wonder it's confusing now that I see it from their eyes. It's, it just really helps me to actually look at it together. And then it also helps them be able to be more equipped than when I'm not there to go, Oh, I remember she showed me that thing. Now that I'm wondering about my grade, I know where to go the next time. And it's not like I want to not have that conversation, but, but it just, I guess it makes them be able to know what my intent was in setting something up. So I think it's self-correcting in both cases in a positive way, but. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's important to learn from our students. You know, they are adept at technology in a lot of ways, you know, and this kind of gets into some of the digital native stuff that, um, I mean, that would be a different, different podcast. But, you know, we often assume that students, because they have technology, a particular technology, like uh, most of my students have a similar phone to the one I have. Some of them have a better phone than I have. But they don't, you know, they're adept at using it in the ways that are important to them, but they are probably not adept in using it in the ways that I would, you know, in some different ways, right? So uh, everybody's students have grown up 
uh, for the most part, using search engines, using Google. But um, you'd be perhaps amazed at some of the ways that some of the things they don't know about Google, about how certain results come up or why, why, why what comes up first, it comes up first and the existence of Google Scholar, you know, um, the, the benefits and detriments of using Google versus using databases. You know, so these are all things that, that we need to engage with students about. I mean, and as I said, we can learn from them, but um, there, there's definitely things, you know, tech-wise that we need, to, we need to work with them on. Before we go on to the recommendations segment, I wonder if you can distinguish for us between digital redlining and what's often talked about as a digital divide. Well, good question. I, I tend to... I haven't found a better way to phrase this, so I'll just say it as I've said it before. When people say digital divide, it's often looked at as sort of a a natural disaster or something like that, like a, an, a, a, a force of nature, like something that exists, but it exists outside of any context where there's somebody to blame or, so, or, or some way to, to address it um, in terms of being an act of will. Um, digital, digital divide divide exists, and then we have to think about how to get people more technology, and that's a simplified version of that narrative. But we often see that when I say digital redlining, uh, the way I distinguish it is that it's typically decisions, it's policies, it's investment decisions, it's pedagogy, or it's decisions made without thinking about questions of of access or bias or how it might affect certain communities differentially. And so I distinguish it from the digital divide in terms of if you, if you say redlining, it's, it's a decision that people have made. You know, if you say divide, you don't really know where it came from. And so it's much harder to address it. Yeah. And I, I know you've said that the digital divide is, is the noun, and so it sounds to me when you say that it just is versus digital redlining is an action that I am taking. And as you said, whether that I'm doing that intentionally or unintentionally. Right. Yeah. Digital redlining is a verb. Yeah. I am <laughs> mm-hmm. eventually going to do t-shirts, I think, but <laughs> I like, I'll be, I'll be among your purchasers. <laughs> well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give recommendations. And I'm actually going to just quick mention that Joe Murphy recommended on the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel that we all watch your talk that you gave at Boston University. He really enjoyed it. And I had a chance to watch it before speaking with you today and think it's a great deeper dive into some of the things we've been talking about. So that's a recommendation from Joe Murphy. And then I want to recommend a very, very short five-minute TED Talk from Julia Sweeney. If you're not familiar with her, she's a Saturday Night Live comedian. I was going to say from long ago, but she's still with us. It's just, I don't think she's still on Saturday Night Live. But uh, this is this is from, let's see, 2010. And I've watched it probably close to the 3 million people that have watched it on the TED Talk site. Uh, it's hysterical. And I'm going to play just the very beginning because she sets it up better than I do. And then I'll explain uh, why I think people should listen. So here's a little brief intro of Julia Sweeney's TED Talk called It's Time for the Talk. I have a daughter, um, Mulan, and when she was eight last year, she was doing a report for school or she had some homework about frogs. And we were at this restaurant and she said, so basically 
Frogs um, lay eggs and the eggs turn into tadpoles and tadpoles turn into frogs. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm not really up on my frog reproduction that much. It's the females, I think, that lay the eggs and then the males fertilize them. And then they become tadpoles and frogs. And she says, what? Only the females have eggs? And I said, yeah. And she goes, and what's this fertilizing? So I kind of said, oh, it's this extra ingredient, you know, that you need to <laughs> create a new frog from the mom and dad frog. And uh, she said, oh, so is that true for humans too? And I thought, okay, here we go. I didn't know what happened so quick at eight. Um, I was trying to remember all the guidebooks and all I could remember was only answer the question they're asking. Don't give any more information. <laughs> so I said, yes. <laughs> so that's a little bit uh, first minute or two of her talk. And it actually relates to today's episode. A lot of times my recommendations don't, but because she does a little internet filtering of her own, but she's also extremely open with her daughter. And it was just so fun for me to watch because I don't think I've seen it since our daughter was born. And let's see, she's two and a half now. And boy, is she ever already asking a lot of questions where I just go, oh, <laughs> I just know we have a lot because I, I really am an open parent. But oh, my goodness, some of the things you try to figure out how to make them age appropriate and, you know, relevant to them. And it's, it's a fun challenge. And they do ask the darndest things sometimes. So that's my recommendation. Chris, what's your recommendation for today? My recommendation is uh, Kathy O'Neill's book, uh, Weapons of Math, M-A-T-H, Weapons of Math Destruction, which I have yet to read, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of her work, her, her blog, and her work on Twitter. It talks in great detail about a lot of the, the things that we've been talking about in terms of algorithmic decision-making and how these things uh, affect people's lives in ways that they are often not privy to. I had no idea you were going to recommend this, and I just bought it two days ago and read the sample chapter and am hooked. I can't wait to read it. So I'm so excited. I didn't know she had a blog, and I'm super excited to learn more about her. Thank you so much for that. That's great. Yeah, her, her blog is Math Babe. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, she exists online as Math Babe. Well, I am so looking forward to learning more about her. And now, <laughs> now you've made me want to read it even more, even though I already, it's, I mean, it's, it just looks fabulous. And the first chapter was great and it should be really good. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being willing to be less private, you know, come on, <laughs> come on a podcast and share <laughs> your expertise and for taking a risk on me. I know you didn't know me and it's just so fun to have you here and get to be challenged by some of your expertise and things that you want us to really consider in our teaching. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I mean, I love talking about this stuff. So thank you. It was so fun to talk to Chris today. And I really appreciate his time. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to comment on the show notes from today's episode, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 130. And at the bottom of the episode notes will be a way to get in contact with Chris on Twitter and on his website. And also want to mention that if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email that comes out from Teaching in Higher Ed, it's just once a week and you get the show notes automatically coming into your inbox along with an article about teaching or productivity. And you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I really thank those who have been giving reviews on iTunes or whatever service that you use to listen to the show. It's been so fun to read your encouragement and know that other people now can discover the show through you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.